John 19, 28, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. That you also may believe, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a nude tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. I invite you to turn also a little forward in the New Testament to 1 John 3. 1 John 3. I'm going to think about our reading in terms of John's words here in 1 John 3. 16. It says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. It's part of a, a very powerful teaching in 1 John on the love of God at work through uh, the, and, and expressed in the body of believers. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we were gathering tonight to celebrate and to remember Jesus Christ in his cruel crucifixion and in his atoning death. And we believe that his life and death are vitally connected to ours. And that's a critical, uh, critical understanding uh, of the scripture that we need, that his death matters to us, that his resurrection, his life matters to us. 
And so when we talk about, you know, justification by faith, like what we read in Romans earlier in the service, we're justified by faith in Christ. We're talking about believing his sacrifice. We're talking about believing in his crucifixion and in his resurrection. And that's uh, the focus of these days, Good Friday and Easter, as we're thinking about uh, his sacrifice in his death and his resurrection, that these are real and true history And not only that, but they affect us now. We are convinced and we trust and we believe that these acts of God, even 2,000 years ago, have a grip on our lives now. And that they are the defining sort of power uh, in the world uh, and the center of human history as it relates to our salvation. And that no one can be saved apart from Jesus in his crucifixion and resurrection. You know, in that way, we pay more weighty attention to the crucifixion's impact uh, as a historical event than, you know, sort of the invention of of anything, you know, any any, uh, thing that we can think of, you know, oh, the power of the internet, you know, this new phenomenon in our lives. You know, today, I ordered a new Yeti, and I laughed at some memes, and, you know, I found a new dentist, all with, you know, this, this incredible development And that's really nice, but according to 1 John, believing the death of Jesus has shown us the true divine love of God. We know his love by this, the death of Jesus. And he has shown us a new way of life, that we should be laying down our lives for one another. There's there's something in the death of Jesus that should be turning our entire lives Uh, into focus on who God is and what true divine love really is and what it means uh, as we relate to others. The crucified Jesus as the true spiritual measure of love and of worth in our lives. And in 1 John 3, we're looking at this beautiful comfort and calling of Jesus by way of his shameful crucifixion that Jesus sacrificially laid down his life, confirming the Father's real and true love for us. This is to know love, not as a platitude or as a feeling or as some subjective and fleeting thing, but to know love is to know Jesus in his sacrificial death. And knowing love, uh, we find that we are the recipients of it through him, the recipients of of God's love in Christ, and we are also participants in it. There's no more reliable expression of the love of God than in the sufferings and in the death of Jesus for our sake. It's proved, it's demonstrated in this. John says that we have come to know, that is to to recognize, we, we know what we're seeing, And we are experiencing from God true love when Jesus laid down willingly his life for us, when he sacrificed for our sake. His action confirms God's love in a way that the world cannot know and does not know. It doesn't recognize and it doesn't experience. But There's a lot of discussion of these things, just not a lot of sort of locking on to the truth that's only found in Jesus. So that, uh, you know, there is this sense in the world of mere talk is not enough. 
You know, uh, for, for true love, talk is not enough. Words of love are admirable, but without action, they're empty. You know, I, I tolerated on the radio this week the song of a jilted lover, right? I tolerated the song of, you know, you said you loved me, but you left. You know, you said, you said, but you didn't. You know, you didn't follow through, and it proved empty. Um, you know, how can we express the comfort and joy that we feel as Christians when God comes through for us? We open this service with this, uh, you know, with these, these words, you know, why are you so far from saving me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? And the cross is the answer to all of these outcries of all you know, history and of all the scripture, all of the longing for the presence and the power of God to be with us are answered when God sends his son to die for us. We cried out and God answers and not with mere talk, but with action. Our savior going to the extreme in obedience to confirm God's redemptive purpose for us. He was hated. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was tortured and humiliated and finally laid down his life. At any moment, right, at any moment, he could have stopped. At any moment, he could have turned around. At any moment, Jesus says, if I, you know, when Peter resisted and cut off the ear of, you know, one of the men arresting him, Jesus said, I could have called at any time, the help of legions of angels. You know, the Father would send 12 legions of angels if I but asked. And he never did any of those things. Right? He never asked, uh, but rather went forward every step. Every step he willingly did to prove that God seeks out and saves the lost with overwhelming and gracious love. That God is willing to love even enemies and reconcile them to himself. We have only to meditate on some of the basic teachings and actions of Jesus to know how important this is for sinners. Did he suffer and die for me? Was he beaten and scorned and shamed in my place? This is the nature of the songs that we sing on a day like Good Friday. Is it possible that Jesus would die for me? It is so unlike what the world would do, but it's exactly what's needed if any of us could ever be saved. Jesus taught us to love even our enemies, but then he did it when he shed his blood for us, for sinners that had not loved him first. The proud world tends only to love the lovable. That's the nature of, you know, of our interactions and uh, the loves of this world of a lesser quality, the kind of love that the world knows is transactional, you know? And that's, you know, why we're, we're smashing ourselves and breaking ourselves with all kinds of counterfeit love uh, that we only love those who are lovable. We only love those who serve us. And this is why our marriages are falling apart, right? I love only as long as you're lovable. And when this is no longer working for me, you know, sort of my love runs out. Or when it's no longer working for you, you know, I'm dropped. It's easy to befriend the friendly, you know, but do we find it easy 
Is it something that comes naturally to us to befriend an irritating person and, and to, you know, to overcome the barriers uh, of the unlovable? But God overcomes even uh, the most traitorous you know, sin, even the, the worst betrayal. God overcomes to reconcile his enemies into his own children. God loved us. The toxic people, you know, I see so many, I, so, I see so much self-help advice, you know, cut toxic people out of your life. You deserve better than this. You know, you, you deserve to, you know, to get toxic people out. And all I could ever think when I read this is I am the toxic person. If God, if God didn't put up with me and, and cleanse me, how could I ever stand? And how can anyone, how can anyone ever, uh, you know, ever really follow through on this if we understand, you know, what it's like to be forgiven when we didn't deserve it. Jesus came to help the broken who could not return the favor and to enrich those who were in complete debt, in utter bondage, slaves to sin. He came to adopt sons and daughters out of God's former enemies. Think of uh, chapter 3, First uh, John 3, at verse 1, if you still have your Bibles open, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. You know, this, is, this is the wonder, right, of, of all Christians. What kind of love God has for us that he would do this, that he would give the life of Jesus for our life, the radical love God confirmed with action through the cross. Now we know what it is and what it costs and what God was willing to give and what Jesus was willing to do to seal that love to us. He loves us, the unlovable sinners, the prostitute, the traitor, the greedy, the people who are hard to love and who didn't make it easy. It required the pains of his suffering and of his death And he went through with it willingly and laid down his life where anyone else would have quit, where we would have quit. He kept going. And now we know what kind of love the father is willing to give, what he has shown. There is no reason for a crucifixion. You know, if God has come to pick the best people, this is the, you know, this is the, the caricature of Christians. This is sort of, you know, you all think you're something. You all think you're special. You're so perfect. And that's why, you know, and you think God loves you the most. And that makes the cross completely unnecessary. And this is why the cross has to stay at the center of our preaching. That we, we would have to remind people, no, actually to save me, God had to put Jesus to death. No, actually, to, to pay for my sins, Jesus had to be whipped and beaten and nailed to a cross and die for me. Pierced in his side and naked and bleeding, Jesus for me. This isn't about God you know, coming to choose the best apples and leave the mushy ones for someone else. Jesus suffered the extreme punishment, even the very wrath and deadly judgment of God to deliver those that could never live 
without his sacrifice. We can illustrate in a thousand ways that our, our culture and many people around us, and maybe we ourselves for a long time, were deluded you know, about love, about true love. We're making quite a claim. You know, this is how love is known. And it's by way of a blood-stained cross, the blood of Jesus. This is how love is reckoned, truly. If you want to talk about genuine love, you know, ounce for ounce and pound for pound, it's measured this way. And not measured by the standard of this world, which, you know, big surprise. How is love measured in this world? It's all sex. It's all sexual morality. It's all shallow and show in so many ways. A tidal wave of, of sexualized everything. Love. <laughs> and, it, and it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous uh, to think about. A thousand shallow songs repeating it can't make it so. And a million, you know, lifetimes of, of uh, you know, pornography and sexualized entertainment can't make a new definition of love. And we can't, you know, drive it home, uh, you know, by repeating it or legislating it. Whatever we want to do, we can't do it. Love is reckoned, it is defined by way of the cross of Jesus. And selfish relationships splintering into painful breakups and divorces Uh, They tell the story of a world that hasn't known true love, not like what we see here, not like Jesus giving his life for ours. We have, uh, you know, a culture that gives a million sort of subjective answers, a million whimsical answers, you know, about what love is and what it should be. Love should always be fun. Love should always be easy. Love should always... Uh, you know, we'll find it when I find my exact soulmate. Um, and it shouldn't be difficult and it should always be a fair and equal exchange. And we're deluded. We're deluded about so many of these things because the way that we have come to understand and know love is when we could contribute nothing. In fact, when we contributed only more sin, Jesus was ready to contribute Everything, even the very blood and life of his body for ours, not equal at all, sacrificial to the fullest. And a worldly mind does not go to the cross, giving everything, right? Everything the way that Jesus has done, not equal at all, but the depth of love is shown and it is known through him. Who grasps on in their definition of love to a bloody cross, to an excruciating crucifixion as the fullest expression of love that the world has ever seen in all history? And the answer is Christians. That's the answer. The answer is the believer grasps on to it because God has shown it to us. And this is how it's known. This is how we understand love. There's no reason for a crucifixion except that God loved us so deeply that he was willing to give Jesus life. And in that way, faith has bonded us to Jesus for deeper love than this world can know. We know that God's love for us is real and abiding and steadfast in the face of any challenge. Who in this world can uproot the love of God that goes even to death 
and back for our sake. And who can steal from us what God secures when he gives it as a gift through Christ? No one can take this from us. Everything else can fail, you know, family can fail and God's love remains and our friends can abandon us and God's love remains. The world can mock us and shame us and exclude us and God's love remains. Even our own conscience accuses us. I'm not worthy of it. And yet he's greater than all of our fears and all of our doubts and greater than all the power of our, even our sins. He's the redeemer that we truly need when he gives his life for ours. God's love remains. And nothing can take it away. The security of Jesus and faith in him now makes this love of God unbreakable. What a gift to know love from God that is secured not by us and our efforts and not by our goodness and not by you know, anything that we can muster, but by the death of Jesus paid in full. That's a simple but powerful sign and seal of that love. God invites us to his table. We're celebrating the sacrament of communion. We preach the cross and at the table we feed upon the knowledge of Christ in his love expressed you know, by the pouring out of his blood and by Uh, the brokenness of his body. We taste and we experience a reality that the world cannot know. And this is why we cannot come to the table in, in worldly ignorance, faithlessness. It's of no value to use the table until our faith has locked on to Jesus as the center of our life. That, that, you know, we can go through the motions of you know taking the bread and wine but this is really about the cross it always was about the cross and sealing to us what we know from God that this is where he's feeding us that this is where his love is proven to us it's about a savior who laid down his life through the crucifixion the world knows the taste of bread and wine. It's the most common sort of meal, right? That's, it was given as the staple of the time, the common meal. You know, bread and wine are sort of like the standard, the regular thing. But only faith in Jesus feeds on and knows the taste, as it were, of his death, of his crucifixion, of the body that's crucified and the blood that's shed for us. And this is where the love of God, right, is signed and sealed to the church. He makes known to us how real and true is that sacrifice of Jesus for us, even up to this very moment, and really now going on forever. The comfort of that cross. It wasn't just for others, some other place or some other time. It's for us, those who put their faith in him. As real and as tasting this wine, as real as eating and you know chewing on this bread, is the reality that God feeds us. He feeds our spirit. He nourishes us, and that's by way of the cross, not to be taken for granted. Our regular feeding for eternal life, and that way, the sacrament is a very special gift from God, and it eliminates. 
you know, the 2,000 years, as it were, between us and the cross. And it eliminates the distance between us and the cross. And it's meant to bring all of us, uh, as it were, to the feet uh, of Jesus and his crucifixion and seal to us, uh, you know, the significance of God's loving action there where his life is given for ours. And the world doesn't know that comfort, but you as believers live on it. We feed on it. And God uh, is constantly nourishing us by it. And that testimony then is ours, and it's to be treated by us as a great privilege. That's why we say uh, it's really an incredible thing that people who were once far off, people who were enemies of God, people who were uh, in no way to be counted as, as you know, the close family around God's table are welcomed and are given a place. And we have a place because of what Jesus has done. The faithless don't know a place at God's table, but he calls the faithful regularly to return and to remember and to take comfort in what Jesus has done. And this is why it's a critical thing that as we're baptized into Jesus and as we participate uh, in his church, uh, that, that we're regularly um, you know, finding you know, fellowship and communion around the cross and around God's table. This is why it's not casual or, you know, I'm there, I'm not there, or I'm you know, one church, another church. We have, we have a, a critical and important um, remembrance of Jesus uh, together to maintain that we're listening to his voice, that we're hearing of his death and resurrection, and that we're feeding together on it and growing in him. And that's not to be done piecemeal. It's not to be done at random. It's meant to be done as a regular remembrance and you know, not as an afterthought of our lives, but as uh, the center of what God has put in front of us, that Jesus should always be before our eyes. To rest in him, to live with him, to be constantly, mindfully, and willingly uh, people of the cross and carrying his cross after him. We are faithful recipients, then, of the love of God and this sacrifice. John says that because we know the love of Jesus, that he laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That is, for our fellow believers, and really for everyone. It extends out from there, as Jesus, as Jesus taught, even to our enemies. But we're to... We're to become not just recipients of God's blessings, but we can't help but be participants in it. That is, receiving it and then showing it to everyone, practicing what we have learned from Jesus. And reading the epistle of John, it's no surprise these sacrificial teachings that he has in mind. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, he says, that is, you know, Start with your fellow believers. But what does he say even in this chapter? In verse 3, he says, Everyone who thus hopes in him, that is, who hopes in Jesus, purifies himself as he is pure. Do we care about and set an example 
for our fellow believers. Purity in speech, purity in our thinking, purity in our conduct. Not giving our minds over, you know, to the same thing that everyone, you know, not entertained by or, or given over to, you know, sexual immorality, to profanity or to greed. We purify ourselves as he is pure. He lays down his life for us and now our lives are a sacrifice. And that begins with an example of purity. We practice righteousness Instead of making a practice of sinning. This is, again, just the same chapter. Look at verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Again, if we know anything about the cross, then we're bound to put it to practice. And not just be recipients, you know, or uh, we could say not only have we received, but we have understood and we have put to work what we've learned from Jesus in a practice of righteousness, not willing uh, to leave sins unchecked, not willing to let them fester or grow, not in light of the cross, but rather putting them to death, evidently loving those around us. As any hateful action towards others is ignorance of the cross. We're to evidently love others as a way of recognizing Jesus loved me enough to lay down his life. And I'm going to begin to press every part of my life into proper service of him. Look at verse 10. By this it is, it is evident who are the children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. We're we're meant to practice in so many ways a sacrificial life. You know, what does it mean to lay down your life for the brothers? That we're actively praying for them and taking opportunities to love others and care for their needs, thinking of them before ourselves It's not enough that we not sin. We have to actively love others. We have come to know the love of God in truth and in in practice, even in flesh and blood. And we're to put that love to practice. And in flesh and blood reality, actively love others. In verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The crucifixion stands at the center of our faith. Practically, right, as the very heart of the message he goes so far as to, as to shed his blood and give his life for us. And in the lesser things, how can we hold back? Stopping short of shedding our blood, what is there that we can hold in reserve? Or at what point will we close our hearts to others and say we have understood the love of God? It doesn't make sense except that we should open our hearts to other people widely. Our privilege is to give to those in need. 
Our privilege is to serve God by serving them and to help others the way that God so generously helped us. Jesus went willing toward the needs of those who were utterly needy, right? And empty, you know, empty handed, empty, you know, in their spirit. He went willingly to them to fill the need. And all of these are about the love of God in demonstration and not talk only. All such sacrificial living is the natural outgrowth of cross-centered faith, where Jesus' willing sacrifice confirmed God's great love. And in that way, we want to confirm and confirm again, without a doubt, That where Jesus has laid down his life for us, we are ready to lay down our lives in his service. Where he has carried a cross before us, we will follow really and truly. Humbling ourselves and engaging in all kinds of sacrifice and service. That is a constant joy and confirmation. This is the pathway of Christ. This is the pathway of the cross. And the worldly mind has no interest in sacrificial living. But it's the new and daily pattern of the believer. Saying we are Christians was never enough. We are, we are cross-carrying, believing, Christ-like people. Or it's talk only. Having known and received the love of Jesus, it's time to participate with more and more zeal. Knowing his cross not to leave for others to do what we should do. Jesus is slapped in the mouth for the truth he spoke when he testified before the high priest. And, you know, must we be like slapped awake so that we give even a little attention to spiritual things? It can't be true of us that Jesus suffers like this. And for us, you know, spiritual things are take it or leave it. They're casual. They're a hobby. You know, they're an accessory to our lives, you know, to be put on and taken off as we see fit. It can't be this way for us. Jesus is whipped for our sake. The skin of his back is torn and his brow is cut with thorns. And, you know, does it must we be prodded and poked and pushed forward you know, unwillingly to wake up to spiritual things and the needs of those around us? It can't be true for us. Or we have not understood the love of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus willingly carries his cross where he could barely go forward because of the struggle and the suffering that he endured. And, you know, do we begrudge to put one foot in front of the other to do his will and to serve and to give of our time and our energy. It cannot, be, it cannot be true of us. Now that we have known the love of God, that's measured not in you know, good vibes, it's not measured in happy thoughts. It's measured in blood. And it's measured in sacrifice. It can't be true of us. Do we begrudge these things that we're to give willingly, that we're to lay down at the feet of Jesus? It's time for us to think 
with the cross at the center of our minds and with Jesus before our eyes. And the only fitting response is to believe him and follow. And this was the the calling, you know, repent and believe. It was take up your cross and follow me. And we do believe and we must follow. The only fitting response is to model his sufferings, his sacrifice, and lay down our lives for the brothers. Living sacrifices, it says in Romans, holy and pleasing to God. Grateful participants, thankful in what Jesus has shown leads to eternal life. And that is the good news of Good Friday, that the sufferings of the cross are not the end of the story, that his crucifixion and his sufferings were on the way to complete and total victory and vindication. And in that way for now, you know, dreadfully uncomfortable. And in some ways, the message of Good Friday is meant to be, you know, one that ends in, in discomfort. And many of the, the songs of Good Friday are meant to be one that, that sort of end in an uncomfortable thought. That this is, this is almost more than we can bear. That Jesus, who is so pure, would give his life for us. That he would suffer so deeply. And that following him goes through the cross and not around it. And for now, in this world, there's dreadful discomfort in being disciples of his and being those who are committed to following him because the world will not thank us for it and the world will not respect us for it and the world will not love us for it. But we believe that Jesus, though he went in the grave, would come out and though he went through suffering, that it would lead to glory and, a, and life that's unmatched by anything this world can offer. We know that while the world doesn't love us and it didn't love him, that we are loved by God. And for us, for now, that's more than enough to weigh against our sufferings and to weigh against our struggles and to weigh against our pains and to weigh against the cost. And it will show that we have understood the truth about God's love that it will last not only for today, but for eternity, that it will outweigh anything that this world can offer, and that it is given with the unbreakable seal of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is our confidence, and that is our hope. And everyone then who comes to hope in him in this way can be confident that our life is secure, that our future is secure, It's sealed with his sufferings, but it leads to his complete victory. Amen. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you have revealed to us what was hidden and what this world cannot see or know. The depth of your love poured out when Jesus gave his life for ours and when he shed his blood for our sake. Or we ask that through the testimony of Christ and his crucifixion, that you would steal our minds uh, and uh, fix them 
on the pathway of life. And though for a time we have deep struggles, though for a time we are grieved by many sins and troubles, though in this world we see all kinds of degradation and sin, though we ourselves are tormented uh, and in many ways suffering because of uh, all of the troubles uh, of a sinful life and sinful world and sin in our bodies. Yet, Heavenly Father, you have prepared through Jesus uh, an unbreakable life and glory that cannot be matched uh, in any other person, in any other way. You, Lord, have taken our sins and paid the price of them all through his blood. And now we're set free. So, Lord, we ask that you would encourage us and bless us now as we come to your table to remember that those who feast on Jesus in his crucifixion and resurrection, that they have really and truly a fellowship with you and life that cannot be stolen, that cannot be snatched away. So, Heavenly Father, give us, we pray, full assurance through your Son, Jesus Christ, that against all of our sins and against every threat, that you yourself are sealing to us the life of Jesus and the promises uh, of his glory and perfection. Ones that we could never make for ourselves, but that you have given graciously through him. Hear our prayer now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to go now.